Hey, time to get in the middle of it. Between two Bs, big ideas and blunt assessments mingle with a bias towards small biz. The Between Two Bs podcast grinds on what needs fixing in business to small business, along with expert POVs, lively debate, and the latest research. Let's go. Today, I'm really happy to uh, introduce, first of all, our, our co-chairs for our new partnership circle within the B2SMB Institute. Uh, it's all about, obviously, partnerships within our industry, the business-to-business partnerships that seem to be enjoying so much success for so many of our members. And uh, I'm joined today by our co-chairs, and we're just going to talk about partnerships in general in the business-to-business space um, and how they work and what works best and what their experience is and all the rest. They're two really dynamic uh, professionals who... I've interviewed before, and I always feel like, wow, I, I just, I really enjoy uh, interviewing them. So the first is Kelly Benish. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, Dave. How are you? Excellent. Happy to have you here. And the other is Kate Daniels. Hey, Kate. Hi, Dave. It's great to be here. Well, again, thanks so much for joining me on this little, uh, this little podcast venture. Um, I, I, I want to start really with an observation and then first and foremost, see if you guys agree, um, but also kind of use it as a jumping off point for each of you to describe what your current job is, what your history is with partnerships, kind of what you've seen in your own evolution of, of partnerships in the game. And I guess that's a great way of setting up that, that partnerships as a word inside of somebody's job title, I don't think existed at a very widespread level even five years ago. And and I've been in B2B forever. And I I just don't remember the word partnerships or alliances or uh you know or those kinds of terms that connote working together with another company to do something. I just don't remember that really being kind of part of the the landscape. But lo and behold, um we've seen within our own organization, but more broadly speaking, We've seen a huge growth in the job title that includes alliances or partnerships. And I think it becomes an important piece of, frankly, a lot of our enterprise brands go to market strategy is to really do it hand in hand with others who are addressing the same customer base. Um, Not competitors, obviously, but who are kind of out there talking to, in our case, small businesses. So Kelly, um, why don't you start? I just if you could just introduce yourself, who you work for, um, kind of your history of getting into partnerships, you know, however you want to really kind of set set up as we begin this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. I'm Kelly Benish. I'm global VP of strategic partnerships at Uberall. I actually joined Uberall by way of Aquahire, uh, my company Navads. It was actually Lex Ten Vane's company. Got acquired by Uberall in 2018, and I've been there ever since. From that point forward, we acquired two additional companies. So it's been fun, lots of post-merger integration talk and aligning company cultures and values. Um, What I typically, uh, how I started in the industry was basically working as an SEO and helping an SEO company build their customer base. And I was a lot younger then. I was new to the industry, um, basically learning partners' needs and, and learning that it's, it's more than just a customer relationship. It's 
strategery, I like to call it, where it's strategic thinking. It's you are the Swiss army knife of a person in partnerships where you have to have good communication skills. You have to have technical prowess. You need to know the ins and outs of their entire partnership experience and onboarding with you. And I um, also was on the consultancy side where I explicitly looked at things like, what is their purview? What experience are they having as a partner? And what do I need to have the, the thoughtfulness or foresight to plan out or map out to better accommodate them going forward? So pretty much my entire trajectory and career has been in search engine optimization, local search, consulting, and data, data and analytics. I, I worked for a data and analytics company for a while. And I think it's, it's really given me all of these, I think, fundamental skills where as someone that works in partnerships, you need to pivot, you need to anticipate change, and you need to innovate ahead of the curve. Well, no doubt you were, uh, you know, you were an obvious selection um, as, as co-chair of our partnership circle for the Institute because of the, the depth and breadth of your background and just doing the job of partnerships. And someone else who's uh, been doing the job for quite a while is Kate Daniels, um, who's your co-chair. So Kate, could you give us a little story of your background and kind of your experience with partnerships? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I work with Oracle NetSuite and um, NetSuite is a global business unit under Oracle. We were acquired about six years ago, but NetSuite was the first cloud-based enterprise resource planning or ERP system. Uh, today, everything's in the cloud, but certainly 25 years ago, that was a pretty novel concept. And, and uh, there were several companies that, that began to spin up uh, cloud-based solutions. And our founder, Evan Goldberg, was one of those. Um, and, and the original intention was to start you know, a cloud ledger company, right? To take financials from on-prem into the cloud. And um, over the years, we have become, you know, the most rapidly growing uh, ERP system. We now serve uh, more than 34,000 customers globally. We are a global solution. Um, and I lead a program under NetSuite called Industry Partnerships. So aptly named and very much to Kelly's point, you know, this this role has everything to do with pulling in professionals and companies um, who have their own interests and who have their own uh, sort of business model to honor. But I think so much of it is, a, is about recognizing the limits of one's own um, span of control and one's own expertise. You know, I, I lived outside of uh, North America for most of my adult life. Um, I lived in South Africa and worked across the continent. And one of the things that I've noticed, you know, as an American returning to her native soil after, uh, you know, a decade and a half away, is that in other countries, you, you are often encouraged to be quite a generalist, right? You're encouraged to, to kind of get good at multiple things at one time because the market requires that. But in the U.S. in particular, um, I find that the onus is much more on specialization. So when I think about what makes our partnerships programs work at NetSuite, it's so much to do with engaging with specialists in various verticals that we serve, right? NetSuite can serve any company, um, you know, any kind of emerging to mid-market company in multiple different verticals. 
but it behooves us to align with and to serve customers together with companies that specialize in some of those verticals, right? So whereas our product can expand and contract as, as needed, um, we find that when you're talking to a very specific vertical or micro vertical, that the best way to, to serve them is to go arm in arm with professionals from other types of companies like implementers and integration partners um, that really understand the nuances of that specific industry. Um, it makes a customer uh, feel more served. It, it honors their unique computing and cloud-based technology requirements, and it improves the stickiness of our product over time. So, um, you know, the, the program I lead is one where we engage with associations and buying groups across North America in various verticals to, to get NetSuite in front of their members. But in doing so, I work with... Um, SI systems uh, implementers or, or what we call alliance partners who do um, implementations of NetSuite. I work with uh, a, net, a network of hundreds of companies that have built integrations onto NetSuite that make the product more usable and more attractive to specific verticals and micro verticals. Um, and then I work with other kinds of partners as well. And I, I think the thing that differentiates this type of work from what some of my colleagues in sales do, for example, is that in, in aligning with partners to do something useful for a customer, everyone is winning. There's not the element of, you know, you're the customer, I'm the salesperson, I am trying to give something to you or to sell something to you that you will then buy and, and that being a very transaction-based interaction. Rather, when you're developing a partnership or amassing a team of partners to do something, it's much more in the context of everybody winning, everybody generating the kind of business they need, everyone um, sort of coming to the table with um, their unique skills and experience and value add, and a unique piece of the business that they get to enjoy and benefit from. And I think it's that element of um, having skin in the game and having something that will directly benefit one's own company that makes partnerships um, a sort of uh, virtuous cycle or, or one in which companies will happily interact and, and engage and invest. Because again, you know, if, if you've got something to win and something that will benefit your company, um, you're, you're much more likely to stick around and to keep adding value. What a great response um, and a very rich one. But it, it kind of tees up, and, and Kate, we can circle back on this with you, but Kelly, over to you. Um, not to oversimplify it, but from your perspective, what is the purpose of partnerships these days in, in the context of business-to-business -business partnerships? What are they doing? Why are they good? Um, why, are they, why are they proliferating, do you think? Yeah, I think partnerships today have evolved to team extensions. So when we work through a partnership, we work hand in hand with our partners. We have a go live plan. We map out every single aspect of the partnership, including integration, support, pricing, marketing, um, any sort of education that is needed to make this integration successful and empowerment. Empowerment is the key. So basically deploying a business model that is education-based where you're sharing your expertise, you're sharing your best practices, you're sharing your learnings so that your partners don't have to fall flat on their face to have the unfortunate experience that others have had. Um, 
and you're really you're you're granting them that expertise through partnership. So you're working as one team. Many times with our partners, we share the same alignment on company cultures. We had some of our partners even donate to a charity that we were fundraising for, which we do every quarter, um, because we're so close. And it's relationship building. It's building bonds through trust. We have partners that we meet with weekly, and I, they're my friends. Um, so basically removing any obstacles for them and making sure that they're successful in their pathway forward in alignment on product, in alignment on vision, making sure that you really understand every single aspect of their company and the partnership and helping them to overcome any challenges that they might face, um, but also helping them to early on uh, have a good idea of the risks that are out there and how to overcome them and, and pre preparing them for that all the way through the partnership. Um, you know, candidly, I've been at my company all in all for about six years. And part of that is because of the partnerships. We build these really strong partnerships that are, um, there's just explosive growth around them. And we think of new ways to innovate on the partnership uh, moving forward. So after year one, how do you continue to grow and expand that partnership? What new ways can you help that partner? And a lot of times it's matchmaking with our other partners from our ecosystem that will help them be successful. It's looking at new ways to do things, rolling out new packaging, new messaging, testing it, having access to their customer base, but enabling them to do that. And so we learn together. And a lot of times too, when we roll out a new partnership, we leverage a couple of accounts as like a test bed to create new learnings even. And we even started doing something recently with the addition of Brian Jambor on our team who heads up our channels. He's very smartly created a customer advisory channel where we solicit our partners through this partner advisory council for feedback on everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. You can call my baby ugly. I want to stay there and understand all day long why my baby is ugly though. And then I want to go through it and create a resolution alongside you, with you in true partnership. So Kate, I mean, obviously a lot to unpack in what Kelly just described. But I guess what I'd like to do is have you speak a little bit about prospecting, qualifying, and otherwise assessing prospective partners. How do you do that? What do you do? Yeah, this is a really uh, important question because of um, reputation management. I, you know, it, it's it's like the old saying. Um, if you want to know who you are, look at your friends and look at who you surround yourself with. And it's no different in the business world, right? We we are we are exemplifying um, our business approach and our reputation and our values and our ethos with the companies with which we align and and the professionals with which we align and and the sort of um, groups in our ecosystem. So rendering due diligence, frankly, on new partners is a really important part of. Um, risk mitigation and value creation, frankly. So to, to 
ensure that you're working with the right types of companies. I think you would approach it maybe with a not quite the, the level of rigor, but a, a commensurate level of rigor as you would a new investment, for example. You're going to, uh, in, in a, a new partnership, you're going to do some desk-based research. You're going to find out whether this group or this company or their leadership has been associated with anything nefarious in the past. Um, you're going to uh, sort of get an understanding for how they are perceived in the market. You're going to talk to some of their existing customers and some of their other partners and develop a sense of how they show up in, in business interactions and what kind of impression other companies and other leaders have of them. Um, I don't think it's a secret that we are all managing our reputations. We're either building them or destroying them at all times in everything we do and in every interaction we have. So. I think due diligence on a, a new partner is very much about establishing what, what kind of role they've played. And that means talking to their customers, it means talking to their other partners, it means doing some desk-based research, and it means asking questions that go to the heart of the value system you have or your company has, right, to ensure that we are in alignment. Um, there are certain groups that that I haven't gone and uh, approached for partnership, and there's a really good reason for that, right? We are thoughtful about the groups with which we work. Um, and I think, you know, it, it also ties back to something Kelly mentioned during her last response was that we become friends with one another, right? There, there's something so fundamentally human about um, the partners that we engage to get a business process underway or to get something done in a business context, which if done right, automatically leads to the, develop of, uh, the development of other types of relationships, other types of friendly working relationships that are deeply gratifying and positive if you invest in them in the right way. And, you know, at the end of the day, we spend the majority of our lives working, and I think we ought to be having fun, and we ought to be working with people we like, we respect, and, and with whom we want to be aligned. Um, and I've certainly found that in my work, the most gratifying parts of what I do have, have to do with aligning with partners that I can trust to get done what they say they will, that I can lean on for things that I don't do well or that you know I need their unique expertise on and people that I can enjoy the presence of. And, and you know, if anything is going to um, provide job security for some of us, you know, in this, in this, you know, very human-centered part of the market, it's that. It's the development of relationships that we value and we can hold on to and we can that will sustain us. Um, and that's, you know, that is a very kind of human um, skill set that I think, you know, it, it's going to take a while before the, the robots and, and the artificial intelligence are programmed with that level of, of acumen. And until then, you know, it, I do think it serves as an important part of how we craft relationships, how we craft our jobs, how we interact in, in the professional environment, and how we ensure that we are enjoying what we do, as well as being successful at executing at what we do. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was a long-winded answer, but I think due diligence on partners is as important as due diligence uh, in, in the investment environment and, and in anything else we do in life. Um, Couldn't so agree more. And I think that, that you know, I think both of you are pointing out that <clears throat> as attractive as a, at least in concept, as attractive as a partnership between LegalZoom and GoDaddy, for instance, might be, and I watched that partnership actually get born five years ago and still going strong. 
as attractive as it might be, if the two people that were kind of in the lead of of creating that partnership really didn't get along, then that partnership probably wouldn't have succeeded or it didn't come from a high enough position within the company as something that was of, of genuine value. Um, Kelly, what what for you um, or what would you say are some of the early wins in a partnership that you need to establish so that you can at least play the long game of partnerships? Um, I think early wins. Can you just elaborate? Like, in yeah, I mean, I think that I think that um, it it takes time to really build a partnership. The just the logistics of it. It takes time to really kind of test your way into optimizing that partnership, whether it's one on marketing or selling or product development. It takes time to really evaluate and and kind of you know is this working, but. Yes. But when you're in the role of partnerships and alliances and you're out there creating five, six a year or maybe even more, what are some of the things that you look at your partner across the table and say, hey, let's let's make this happen in the next 90 days so that everybody from above looking down on us and and and, and down to us for what we're doing are going, yeah, that, that looks like it's working. So that's what yeah. I mean, it really wins. Got it. Thanks. So like establishing trust through report and just making sure that you have that ongoing communication, that layer is really where you'll see the, the initial wins, right? So the initial buy-in on the partnership, sometimes it's not necessarily the person that you're speaking to that is going to ultimately make the decision, but they're an influencer, or they're your champion and really identifying how their process works in order to, you know, get that yes and move forward. But you're courting them just as much as they're courting you in that relationship. So that's the make or break point after the trust is built, determining if you'd be a good fit, right? So um, with all due candor, getting that complete transparency from them on what's worked before, what hasn't worked, finding out their pain points and really delving deep but having that trust factor established so that they're fully transparent, fully honest with you. And there are no surprises later because it can feel like that's a little bit sneaky. And then I think laying the groundwork, right? Putting a plan together, thinking about how they acquire new customers or partners and how you can help facilitate that depending on what end of the funnel you're in, um, in that partnership. And then also, meeting other stakeholders at the company, expanding that trust that you've built with your, your key person that you've been speaking with. And then the, the big wins obviously are the contract, right? Moving forward from the contracting perspective. But then for me, it's meeting them. It's training their team. It's building upon that initial, initial foundational layer of trust and growing from there. It's them coming to us and saying, what other ways can we grow together? Um, and then obviously realized revenue, right? Increased ARPU over time and finding out new ways to work together through the partnership ecosystem and the channels. So Kate, back to you. Um, the I think Kelly just set it up really well, you know, and what really kind of defines those early days, those early stages. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, 
Can you just talk a little bit about what you think was one of the most successful partnerships that you've been a part of over the last five years and why it was so successful? And Kelly, I'll ask the same thing of you when we come back. Yeah. Um, you know, one that's springing to mind right now uh, that I'm especially proud of and excited about and in which there are lots of moving pieces and lots of companies is our partnership with a, an organization called the Professional Promotional Materials Association International or PPAI. PPAI is a 15,000 member association of promotional materials companies. And um, they've been a, a NetSuite customer for a few years. And at some point we started having a conversation about uh, NetSuite for their members. But promotional materials is a very specific industry. It, they need to run their backend technology uh, in, a, in some very specific ways and it needs to be deployed together with other solutions. So this required us, if, if we were to serve them well, it required us to think about and to plan, you know, to Kelly's point about really kind of getting clear about your plan of action with, with other partners, how we would serve those members and how we would kind of come into that community with a well-drawn up um, offering that was ready for market, that was ready for being deployed so that we weren't wasting customers' times, kind of the time kind of figuring out how we were all going to integrate. We had to go ready. So as we entered the, the, the PPAI discussions early on, we aligned with two of our existing partners and they're very different types of partners. We aligned with a company called Extend Tech, which has built integrations onto NetSuite that makes NetSuite do the things that a promotional materials company needs it to do. And we aligned with a, an alliance partner, an implementation partner called Bryant Park Consulting. And they have a team internally who specializes in technology for promotional materials companies. Now, this sounds very niche, but there are quite a bit of them out there. And this represents an important market we wanted to serve. So <clears throat> we were able to kind of enter the PPAI community and start attending their events and starting engaging their members in a way that was arm in arm with two other strong technology companies that understand this industry, that have the street cred, that have the nuance, and um, with whom we could align in a way that was trusting and um, in, in, in a way that uh, <clears throat> would ensure our values and our ethos were, were echoed by our partners. And it's it's proved to be a tremendously valuable partnership. So we, you know, we are doing deals with PPAI members all the time. We have created a user group of customers in that community so that the members themselves can share how they're using NetSuite and how they're working with our systems and tools to their, their highest end. Um, and it's something that we're really proud of at NetSuite. It's one of our top uh, association partnerships. And I call it out specifically amongst a few others because it, its success has not been solely the result of our interaction. The success there has been the result of, of a partnership of multiple companies. And, um, and, you know, Kelly knows this better than anyone. That's not easy to get right. And it really does depend on a lot of sort of common investment from distinct companies who have their own interests. And when you can get that right to with everyone's kind of eye on the prize of, of elevating and serving customers in that community, it's deeply gratifying. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to grow that relationship. Um, over yeah, the years. I think there's a there's a checklist almost of things that you just described, and that that this is what success looks like is mm -hmm. having many of those elements. So Kelly, kind of short and sweet wrap up from your perspective. 
um, Kate kind of alluded to it. What are what would you say are kind of the top two, three pitfalls that unsuccessful partnerships fall into that you would caution anyone who has a role of partnerships to avoid these things or look out for these red flags? Uh, I think, you know, they tell you early on who they are and you should listen to them. Um, a lot of times we're turning partnerships away. And I'm really glad you didn't ask me about specific partnerships because <laughs> 500 white label partners that would be really upset if I, I divulged who they were, you know, what we were doing. But I will say many times, more often than not, we're turning away partnerships. So being selective, right? Being selective that the way that you work and the way that you're most comfortable in working that will set you up for success is the way that aligns the best with the way that they work. So if you support, if you if you handle customer support or if you handle the integration, uh, who on their team is going to project manage that? Like really poking the bear and understanding early on if your project or your migration or your integration is going to be supported from their end, where the buy-in is, um, you know, what their, what their financials look like, delve in deep, uh, asking painful questions that, you know, require a certain level of honesty from moment one. Do they have what it takes to, to move this forward, move this partnership forward? And if you can't answer that, if you're cloudy, it's just like a bad relationship. It's time to break up before you invest more time in it. So understanding if they're a fit, understanding if there's um, any other constraints that you can't foresee in the immediate conversation by doing your due diligence, as Kate mentioned earlier. And then do you work? Do you align culturally? Do you see the same vision? Do you share the same values? And if not, you know, could that potentially be a pitfall for you? And really delve in deep there and analyze that. We're excellent words of advice. And um, I think as many times as we're hoping for success, we really kind of need to know what does failure look like um, and, and, and be kind of alert to any signs that that's coming. Guys, th I can't thank you enough. I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that you're co-chairs of our new partnership circle within the Institute. We see a, a huge appetite within this community of large businesses that sell at scale to small businesses. Uh, a real need for walking through the door to the small business together. Uh, it makes for, a, uh, I think, Kate, you used the word stickier. It makes for a richer kind of offering uh, that makes sense to the small business, by the way. Um, in fact, fits into their kind of their, their logic. Um, so I, I can't appreciate, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys doing this. And hopefully it forms the springboard for not only our community, but other people who are out there that are doing all kinds of different partnerships, uh, a little bit of a guide on, on how to do it. So thanks very much, Kate. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And Kelly, thank you very much. As always, great to thank see you. Great you. to have you. All right. Great to see you. All right. Thanks very much. Stay tuned for the next episode of Between Two Bees. This is Kelly Benish. I'm Global VP of Strategic Partnerships at Uberall. I work through some of our most complex partnerships and integrations across the board, and this makes me uniquely qualified to co-chair and host the Partnership Circle. This is an inaugural meeting around the B2SMB Leaders Forum in Napa Valley. 
It'll take place on May 18th, and I just wanted to extend a personal invitation to you. From this, we'll be doing a Partner Playbooks workshop where we'll be sharing secret sauce and some of the best and brightest ideas that you can take home and implement right away. I hope to see you there. Safe travels. Hey, good day, everybody. Uh, everybody, Dave Walker here with the Vita SMB Institute for another episode of Between Two Bs. You know, I decided to uh, have some podcasts around our Leaders Forum in Napa next week um, uh, on May 17th and 18th. Uh, there's just an incredible amount of content over the course of a day and a half that we're going to address uh, at this this meeting of C-suite executives from around the business, the small business uh, brand world. And uh, I'm I, I really excited about who's going to kick off all the keynotes. And there's a couple of reasons why I'm excited. Um, number one, this, uh, this gentleman was one of the very first keynotes when the whole idea of a business to small business organization association network was kind of a glimmer in my eye and I was kind of trying to pull off a Mickey Rooney Julie Garland kind of routine of hey kids let's get together in Chicago and talk about how hard it is to sell the small business and he stepped forward and said hey that's a really pretty cool idea I'd like to come talk about things as it turned out um, it was probably one of the more impactful keynotes that was delivered uh, for that uh, for that audience and it was from not a marketer, not a salesperson, but a product developer. And it was really all about the idea of developing and uh, taking to market products or services that were really uh, based on listening, listening to small customers. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure he'll talk a little bit about kind of the history of how products have been developed and deployed, and in many cases still are today. Uh, not necessarily listening to small small business customers, but actually just kind of presuming that you know what's best for them. So without further ado and without um, further preamble, Stephen Aldrich, welcome. Thank you so much, Dave. I, I appreciate the trip down memory lane. You know, that was a really fun session in Chicago. And, you know, there's, there is just not enough focus on the importance of small businesses to the global economy and the jobs they create and the services they provide and products they provide in our local communities. So, so I'm always delighted to talk about this and get people's uh, brains turning about how do we do this better? Well, you certainly are someone who has been in this business to small business space. You know, what I loosely define as uh, organizations that uh, are, are, are selling products or services at scale to small businesses. And that scale, I usually mean coast to coast, up and down, all shapes, sizes, and flavors of small business. At the time, back in 2017, you were the chief product officer at GoDaddy and had kind of seen a lot of the product development that really was going on in GoDaddy uh, during that time. Um I'll ask you to take your own trip down memory lane and just talk about your career in um, creating products, delivering products, um, really helping other people create and develop products as you do now. You're on several boards. Give us uh, kind of a, a 411 on what your career was like. Yeah, thank you. It, it's uh, hard to believe, and it's going to sound like I'm probably 100 years old when I go through the experiences <laughs> that I've had, but you know, I, I've 
been a startup CEO. So I've been a small business person. I've been a founder. I work with a number of small businesses day to day. Uh, and along the way, I was fortunate enough to, to sell one of those startups to Intuit, where I really cut my teeth on how do you get close to customers and some of the systems you need to put in place to good, get good at it at scale. So I was at Intuit for a dozen years and then uh, spent time at GoDaddy, seven years at GoDaddy, uh, the last few as the chief product officer, as we grew from 10 million to 20 million customers and from a U.S. Centric firm to a global firm, so I've seen I've seen a few things along the way that I think are useful for others to to learn from and and adapt to make their own. And currently, I'm spending time uh, both as a board member for firms that focus on the small business space, uh, Zero and uh, Semrush, and I'm also building a small business uh, in the sports world as a chair of a pro soccer team in Oakland men's team called the Oakland Roots and women's team called the Oakland Soul. And, and again, the lessons learned on how do you listen to your customer uh, apply there as well. So uh, so for me, it's, it's a really exciting thing to talk about. And I guess I'll start by saying, you know, building a great business you know, starts with knowing your customers. And, and to know your customers, you have to listen to them. And so maybe three themes that, that we can weave through the conversation and maybe point one is that listening is a really hard skill in general. Like, so maybe we'll talk a bit about that. Um, you know, point two is that you know, when we think about this particular customer segment of small businesses, and by the way, sometimes we're serving them directly, and other times we're serving them indirectly through a channel. Uh, you know, when we think about the numbers of these customers you need to reach to build a big business and how heterogeneous they are, like how diverse these small businesses are, you have to then decide, well, how do you collect the feedback and, and who do you listen to? And then maybe on point three, you know, you can hear someone's feedback, but you hearing it actually doesn't make the trains run. So how do you get all the people that need to hear about it uh, into the conversation and then figure out what to do? And so I just, <laughs> just thinking through that, it's making my heartbeat a little bit faster. I'm starting to sweat because uh, it's such a tough thing. Uh, but, you know, I think those are, are three uh, points, perhaps, that we can weave through our conversation about stories that, that I, I think are useful to repeat as, as lessons for others to draw from. Um, and a great three points, which we'll, we'll unpack each of them. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, way back in 2017 at that first conference that we did, but I started it off in a kind of a cheeky way by asking of the 350 people that were there in the audience, how many had actually spoken directly to a small business in the last 30 days. And about three or four hands went up very sheepishly. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and I was just, I, I was flabbergasted because I didn't really think the number was going to be that low. I thought it was just going to be, you know, a, a handful of people, frankly, who didn't raise their hands. But an overwhelming number of businesses who are very purposefully trying to sell successfully to small businesses actually don't proactively talk to small business. And, and can't really, frankly, get the opportunity to listen. Um, why do you why do you think that is? I mean, it just just broadly stated, is it because there's uh, kind of an institutional arrogance, as I call it, you know, that exists in a lot of brands? Is it because the easy button is to really just simply take the corporate product and dumb it down for small businesses, as many do. What do you think is kind of at root? What did when when as you encountered it in the different stops that you made, 
what did what did you think it really was and how did you overcome it yeah the the you know people don't wake up in the morning when their title says you know small business channel person or small business product person or ceo of a company focused on small business and think oh great i'm going to spend the day ignoring my customers that that's that's clearly you know the intent is they want to do great things and so if we start with the assumption that people have good intent you know, there are a few things that I think get in the way. You know, one is you know, being inside of a corporate entity, you get insulated from the outside world very quickly and very easily. So you have to find a way to strip that down. Uh, number two, I think that once folks feel like they've talked to someone and then internalize that and they have a plan, the plan will work. And, and I can assure you that that is not the way the real world works. So maybe I'll tell a quick story from my days in Intuit. And I think, by the way, Intuit does this quite well uh, much of the time. And uh, this was back in the early 2000s. I was running a part of the, the QuickBooks verticals business and it stepped in to run the QuickBooks point of sale team. And the QuickBooks point of sale team at the time had this brilliant concept of turning a PC into a full-on point of sale, retail, software, and hardware uh, solution and make it cheap, make it easy and have it be very functional. So much more functional than an electronic cash register, but, you know, a 10th of the cost of having a uh, channel installed point of sale system. Okay, great. That was the idea. Uh, I'd come in to lead the team in its second year. So there was already a version one out there. And one of the first things I did is I went to our customer care team in Tucson and I listened in on calls and oh my god it was a nightmare i was listening in on these calls and they were not like oh well you know how can i help you there were people saying you know my business is down i've been trying to install this for days multi-hour long troubleshooting calls because it was software and hardware peripherals think credit card scanner cash drawer receipt printer barcode scanner and you needed all this stuff to work together and it was super painful and you know the team had designed a beautiful help manual, a quick start poster. They put all the drivers. I don't know if everyone remembers back to the days who needed drivers for hardware to work. Uh, oh, and, yeah. You know, everything medically, right? You connect it all to a PC. And, and the team felt really proud of all this work. And clearly, I was hearing uh, loud and clear. And we had some quantitative data, too. We had a net promoter score that was negative, profoundly negative. So I had quant data. I had qualitative data. I was like, okay. Um, I need to get the team exposed to this. And I decided I was going to play a UPS delivery person for the day. So we gathered up our engineering team. And this was a team we'd acquired. And by the way, they were they were experts in point of sale systems. Like they'd been doing this for a really long time. And that I think was one potential key here is they knew so much. Uh, and they traditionally worked through a VAR channel. So they were slightly insulated from the end customer. So uh, I said, okay, we're all going to go to a retailer and I'm going to put the box as if someone had bought it from a retail store uh, on their counter and we're going to watch them install. And we're not allowed to help. We're not allowed to say anything. We cannot intervene. So we're just here to observe. So we walk into the store, we put the box on the counter and the retailer says, thank you so much, proceeds to rip open the top of the box, 
finds the quick start poster that we had so elegantly written, throws it over her shoulder. So that's now on the floor. Then she starts pulling out the peripherals from the box in whatever order and starts plugging them into the back of the PC. And at this point, the look of horror on our engineers' faces was was uh, palpable. Oh, I and, can imagine. And then, yep. And then she turns on the PC, throws in the CD-ROM, and not surprisingly, nothing works. Like cash drawer didn't open, receipts aren't printing, the scanner and credit card reader <laughs> took input, but the information was being placed in the wrong fields. It was really bad. And so, you know, we we debriefed after that, and the engineers were stunned. And they're like, "Well, we designed these steps in the process, and you know, we we said, you know, don't." attach anything until you in, uh, install the drivers. And I'm like, yeah, but this is the real world. Like, this is what happens. Like, you know, someone just expects it to work. And this real idea of plug and play became a mantra for the team. So uh, team went back to the drawing board and we gathered more data after that, but we color coded the cables. We had different size plugs. We actually, to deal with some of these issues of stuff not working, we designed in the software, very specific buttons you could press to test each peripheral separately and a test mode that the folks on the care team could ask the retailer to go into to, again, attempt to troubleshoot without having to deal with this uh, you know, whack-a-mole problem that we had on customer care at that point. And we also decided during this time to fund a lot more free customer care during the first 30 to 60 days of, of a retailer's life at, at Intuit. And just had this epiphany as to what easy really meant uh, by getting close to the customer. And, uh, you know, there were huge changes, like lots and lots of changes, small and large. And, you know, much to the delight of the team, that next version was a home run. So our NPS score went up plus 30 points year over year. Customer care calls were down. Sales of all the attached products and services, and this is early days of attaching merchants and services, went up dramatically. And that business went on to become a very, very large business at Intuit. So, so the, yeah, some lessons learned there. One, like, even if you think you're an expert, even if you think you've designed the best thing ever, you have to go to get close to the customer. You can do it directly, right? Uh, go out and, and see the customer in their habitat, what we used to call follow me home or follow me to the office. And your customer care team, not surprisingly, is going to know a lot about how the real world is impacting the experience of your customers. That's an incredible story. And I can't imagine there aren't like dozens of people right now listening to this, shaking their heads or nodding their heads and going, Jesus. It's a triggering it's so story to say the least. Yeah. And oh, you know, my. I, I've, I've been there when engineers, you know, are faced with the harsh reality of a customer response and they probably thought their baby was being killed in front of them, you know, to have the. Well, it was really, uh, yeah, it was a challenge, right? There were, and there were designers on the team and, and there were product managers and there were, you know, people who were working on hardware and the UX. I mean, there's lots and lots of people and, and ultimately, you know, you have to break through on an emotional level. You have to get people to to really viscerally understand the customer's need for simplicity. And and you may think it's easy, but that doesn't matter. Does the customer think it's easy? Is is part of the challenge? And you've you've obviously led. You've been a product developer. You've led product development teams and engineers. Is part of the challenge that the incredible expertise and skill required to do the job of building a product like the point of sale system for Intuit is extraordinary. And, and, but the letting go of that knowledge and skills to 
really be the servant of what the customer wants versus being the, the one who's handing them the solution saying this is best for you is that really the big leap that everybody that you you made and that that the engineers you worked with had to make yeah there were two i think there are two things that that had to change one was the belief that oh the product management person has got it right so oh we as engineers can just write the code and develop the product uh, because the product and designer who work with us have done all of this customer discovery. It is true that product management has a valuable function and design has a valuable function, but the whole idea in the last decades uh, worth of, of effort in agile processes is that you get as close to the customer as you possibly can as an engineering team. So, so I think that's one thing is there's this organizational design uh, myth that somehow the engineering team can hand off uh, customer understanding to the product manager and the designer. So I think that's myth one. And then I think your second point is a good one, which is, you know, engineering teams have so much to think about and to do, uh, clean code, security, privacy, uh, constant maintenance of the infrastructure. I mean, there's a lot going on that, that you have to get right that, you know, one more thing, which is, gosh, I have to go find time to carve out to talk to the customer seems like, well, maybe I, I don't have to spend as much time there. And I just think that is like front and center as the, the most important potential outcome is how do you individually understand the customer well? And again, that's hard to do and, and finding ways to build process, even as a small scale startup around agile that gets you close to the customer is really important. Um, you've talked before with me about this notion of, you know, being a closed door organization versus an open door organization. And talk a little bit about that and how that impacts really kind of the 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 listening that an organization does with its small business customers. Yeah. Oh my God, I have a great story, and and not just like the the virtual uh, closed door, but in this case, an actual physical closed door. So when. Uh, <laughs> So I joined GoDaddy. <laughs> I joined GoDaddy in 2012, uh, and the company at the time was known for selling lots of domains, and uh, yet not great customer experiences. Uh, and so I, I walked in after selling them a startup with the idea that we were going to to change that that uh, focus and make the company not only have marketing that resonated. Uh, and a brand that was inclusive, but also build products that were great. And so one of my first trips to Tempe, Arizona, where one of our uh, engineering teams was, that engineering team happened to be co-located with a huge customer care center. And I was leading uh, not just the product that I had sold into, into GoDaddy, but one business unit called Productivity. And that Productivity business unit had as its core product domain-based email, like very simple in the in the small business world. Like, how do I go from using an at Gmail account to you know Stephen at StephensBusiness.com? So so I walk into the the contact center and as on my as on my way to the engineering team, and I get just accosted by the customer care agents there, like Stephen. You know, today pod three is down or pod 19 is down or pod six. And I'm like, how do you even know what pods are? Well, the reliability at the time of the GoDaddy email system was such that the 
customer care teams had gone in and figured out that we had this distributed uh, server system and they knew certain names of certain server clusters uh, and they were joking about which pod would have difficulty on which day. And you know, you know right then that that the customer care team is really trying to help serve their customers and explain what's going on when they get to that level of technical detail, but it's also not a good sign. So I, I talked with a group of about 50 care agents who were primarily taking calls from these email service customers, and they were not interested in what new features were coming. They just wanted to get out of these calls that they couldn't help with, like email service would be slow or unavailable. And there was literally nothing customer care could do. This wasn't a, how do I call? This was a, sorry, I can't help you call. So, so I walked out of that conversation feeling really not good and literally walked through a closed door uh, from that customer care team. And on the other side of the door was the engineering team responsible for that product. And so I, I, walk, I walked through the door and and I you know, had pleasant intros to the engineering team. And I said, hey, um, do you guys know that on the other side of that door is a row of customer care agents that take almost exclusively calls for the product that you guys build? And the answer was no. Turns out the engineers came in one entrance, customer care came in another. There was like this badge thing that people were worried about. I'm like, guys, this is insane. Like literally on the other side of the door, I know your metrics are saying that in the grand scheme of things, the metrics look fine. I'm telling you that our customers are calling and they're saying it's not fine. A mission critical service like email, you know, it's not just good enough to have three nines. Like this is six sigma level of reliability and any small hiccup is going to create a problem that we're going to hear about. And when you have millions of customers on your email service, you know, any small hiccup is going to create a lot of calls and a lot of unhappy people. So I said, well, come follow me. Let me introduce you all. Uh, let's open this door. And if I need to go get security to change the badge permissions, let me know. Uh, but I think your badge might work. And sure enough, you know, badge works, open the door, they walk through. We connected the teams, they started lying in. And for those of you who've been in customer care centers, you know that you can have a second person on a phone call, it's called lying in. And so we had engineers hop on the phone with agents, listening to the customers, hearing that the customer didn't care at all about the features that were in the product. They just wanted to know how fast it was, how reliable it was, was it working on my mobile phone? And you know that really changed the culture of that team. And, and we went from being the smallest business uh, at GoDaddy at the time uh, to a business that went from the smallest business to over 10 million mailboxes, about a quarter of all GoDaddy customers attach email to the core domain product and revenue when I'd started, uh, which was well under $100 million to now approaching a billion dollars. So, so, you know, this stuff matters. So it's not just, oh, let's, let's listen to customers because it's a nice thing to do. This stuff radically changes the trajectory of your business when you do it well. And it was as simple as truly opening a closed door. It's, it's really, it's, it's amazing. And, and, and I think that, that the, le the leadership lessons here are, are so critical in, in that, and, and I still encounter them, frankly, see them a lot to this day is the, the natural siloing that happens, uh, the creation of silos inside of large enterprises 
creates these these closed doors between departments that of course should be talking to each other teams people right, right. individuals i mean of course marketing should be talking to sales of course sales should be talking to customer service of course customer service should be talking to product development i mean these are all the kind of interconnectedness that that really is so important to particularly i think the small business customer base because bottom line and i, I really discovered this when building bizhive the small business does not look at GoDaddy as a group of separate departments that have separate responsibilities for different areas of the product and service that they just bought. They look at GoDaddy exactly. as one entity, one person, one being. And you can have all the divisions and organizational structures you want. The, the customer doesn't care. They, they simply yeah. want the product to work, do what it says it's going to do, be you know be as flawless as they attempt to be and move on they they don't want to have to dwell yeah. on it in any way shape or form yeah the, the, no it's it's a great point in fact i can't remember who said this but i think it's quite a well-known quote that you know you don't want your org chart showing externally and how your customer experience works and a lot of folks org charts show up when you try to interact with your product or with the company you know and that's not a good thing and so sorting out how do you hide those seams how do you ensure that that you cooperate and work together across organizational boundaries uh, is, is I think, one of the biggest challenges of, of a modern company as, as it grows. Do you have any other stories of just kind of disconnects that that you saw kind of in your career that, that again, proved the point of if these barriers came down? Um, one, one yeah, maybe one funny story uh, from early, early days at, at Intuit. And this one will be quick, which is, you know, Intuit started out uh, with one product, Quicken, and eventually they they merged with another company called Chipsoft and brought TurboTax in. But early on, Intuit was Quicken alone, and the company was started by Scott Cook, had a very uh, consumer product goods focus, so lots and lots of surveys. So one user survey had come back a few years in a row. And one of the standard questions was, you know, tell us about you. And one of the choices was, you know, why are you using the product? Are you a consumer, small business, you know, family business, et cetera? And uh, the data came back and there was a pretty high number of people selecting this business checkbox. And literally for two years in a row, the data was more or less discarded, like, ah, they must have clicked the wrong box. Well, after two years, the third year, this thing happens and the question finally gets asked, hey, can we actually call those customers? Again, this is a company that's very customer centric. Um, you know, let's let's call those customers and and go see how they're actually using Quicken. And sure enough, you know, there were a bunch of businesses using Quicken to track expenses and write checks. And it was like, well, we didn't design it to do that. I mean, that was the original <laughs> thought. Like, well, that's that's insane. How could they be doing this? Well, it was a heck of a lot easier than anything else in the market that required you to know double entry. And and so that was the the driver, the the kind of genesis moment for what became QuickBooks and QuickBooks DOS came out in 1991. And obviously now it's become a giant product. So so even really, really good companies who are used to listening to customers can get caught up in the uh, there's no way that can be right. Uh, and you know, perhaps that product could have been launched earlier if someone had reached out and either validated or invalidated the hypothesis that 
hmm, there's no way someone could be using the product for that purpose because it wasn't designed for that. So uh, fun, fun story from the early days there. And, and a great story to boot. Um, you know, I, I remember a story that um, that uh, Lauren Weinberg, who's the CMO of Square, told uh, at, at the same event, the Leaders Forum, a couple of years back. And, and she had just overseen a, a kind of a global rebranding of Square, um, really from, frankly, the, 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 a board level direction of just guys, guys, you need to get a, you guys need to really kind of reposition yourself to better have better success with many of the product extensions you're trying to uh, build off of that wonderful little key fob you know, a little fob that goes on, on the payment fob that goes on the mm -hmm. phone. And, and Lauren said the, the, the moment of truth was really in discovering through a lot of listening to customers that they were almost victims of their own success. As in the, the little white fob was so relied upon to be mm -hmm. bulletproof as a point of sale, um, a data collection device that it was very hard for the small business to think in terms of product extensions because I don't want it to mm -hmm. do anything else. I want it to be, I, I expect a sponge to be a sponge. I expect the chair to be a chair. I expect this little <laughs> fob to be a little, you know, point of sale collection device. And I don't want to, I don't yeah. want you to introduce me to financing. I don't want you to introduce me to uh, account uh, account receivable management. I don't want you to introduce me to all these other wonderful things that you've engineered. And it, it, it sent them back to the drawing board as, as they now have launched very successfully a lot of product extensions into the, we have to come through the doorway of what customers told us they found valuable about the FOB. Whatever, whatever we build, it has to be the the 100 bulletproof solution it has to be look act and, and and exist as simply as that little white piece of plastic and it really and, and many other things and, and it really kind of drove how they went back and rebranded through the product itself um saying look this is this is your hub think of it as it's walking around with you managing your money um and yeah, uh, I, I thought it was a that's great funny. story. It is. And, and there's a lesson learned there too, I think, which is, you know, you go deep with your customers and then understand what are those adjacent products and how can you make it so that the adjacent products feel very natural? Like a small business doesn't want to be using product A and all of a sudden they're getting a call or a message or a text or any other form of interruption when they're trying to get their work done in product A, unless it's 100% relevant. And so over time, uh, I've had a bunch of experiences where trying to be very clear as to what adjacent products actually could work and add value to the small business experience. So they're willing to use them and eventually pay you for them. So there's actually a whole methodology around that, that at some point it'd be fun to talk through. So as we kind of wind this down, um, I'm curious to kind of get your your um, your schematic, as it were, or how you kind of di diagram diagrammatically look at the repeatable processes that that every successful business has to ultimately develop. Um, yeah. You know, you you can't just do it once for this particular product for this particular feature. You really have to build something that is that is 
I think you call it, I call it, it's a virtuous cycle. I mean, it, it basically keeps informing itself. It keeps its own forward momentum going in, in a kind of a nice loop between all the responsible parties that, you know, kind of serve the, serve ultimately the customer success. If you envision in your mind what that virtuous cycle looks like when it comes to successful listening driven product development, what, what would it be? Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of the first point in the map. If we think about you know a a clock face, and and we've got you know, reinforcing steps in the process. You'd start with you know listen at the top, and who is going to be doing the listening? To whom do you listen? How do you collect that feedback? Once you get the collection of that input, then you have to gather a group together to prioritize it. So kind of the next step would be okay. We heard these things. As I think about the so what of those things, you know, how do I think about both the impact on the entire process, what I'll call the end-to-end -end impact? If we make this change, how big of an impact will it have on our customers? And that could be you know, everything from upfront marketing to the product experience itself to customer care to billing, like think very broadly. And then we usually would run that through this lens of how hard is it to execute? So impact and execution difficulty. And then we actually need to not surprisingly go do something. And so the last piece is act. And here I would say, you know, progress is better than perfection. Like begin with the idea that making incremental improvements and then checking back in is better than waiting for a big bang. So, you know, progress is better than perfect. And, and you'll again, hear me say that need for speed, agility, like show progress. You will win the hearts and minds of your customer care team. You win the hearts and minds of your customers by you know making things better, faster versus waiting in today's day and age. I think there's an expectation that you can make things better like right now, right? Push a new update to your app, uh, get new software, get new experiences, change your process. So, so need for speed is key. And then you do it again. So then you, hey, customer, did that get better? And you start the cycle at the top, you know, listen, prioritize, act. And you do that over and over and over again. And your know, engineering teams have a methodology uh, that supports this called agile. And the idea here is to make an agile organization. So not just the engineering team, but, you know, all members of your cross-functional team, you know, get bought in, in the cultural change of building it into the goals telling the truth, you know, this is what reality looks like today. We're not sugarcoating it and storytelling about here is what I heard, you know, that culture of feedback supports uh, this process uh, from, from start to finish. And as you, I mean, it, 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 of course it sounds elegantly simple and, and achievable, but are there, the devil is always in the doing. Um, are there tips that you have from having done this successfully that you would say, Hey, look, you know, it's easy to diagram out this virtual cycle, but here are some things that I really recommend that you do to enhance your listening, to really organize yourself around how to prioritize on on making that transition from acting to listening again. Are, are there things that you would they would serve up as tips? Yeah, I think a few things to have people uh, go away and, and chew on. So you know, I'd start with, is this someone's day job? So you don't need to create a new job in the org chart necessarily, but you know, does someone own the process of bringing a cross-functional team together, ensuring that you have 
uh, accurate and up-to-date information collected from customers and from, in some cases, prospects as well, which is a whole other topic, but related. So, so make it someone's day job. That's piece one. Uh, that person then should work with the leadership team to say, all right, who needs to be in the room? Because it's not it's not going to be successful if all you have in the room is one function. So who else needs to be in the room when we get this feedback? And can we get a representative from maybe different product teams if this is a multi-product company? Certainly different functions. And then start to, to build a operating mechanism where this group gets together. You have a representative sample of customer data that, again, should be repeatable. And this, this is part of that uh, responsible person's day job to run that op mechanism, ensure the meetings happen, and then start to track what do we say we were going to do and did we do it? And so I think those are those are some simple things, but I'd start with, you know, make it someone's day job, ensure that you have cross-functional participation and that the data you're bringing back is a mixture of qualitative and quantitative information from a representative sample of your customers. And again, we can have a long conversation about what that means, but I think if we put that out there and people go back and ask themselves, am I getting data from a broad cross-section of my customers, not just the loudest or squeakiest ones uh, or a particular geography or particular product? You know, that's really important because you might find some hidden gems uh, off the beaten path. Uh, this has been fantastic. And and uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to hear you uh, address this, 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 uh, this topic of listening um next week to 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 our audience but i think our our podcast audience is going to appreciate this greatly as well you paint a lot of very vivid stories and pictures of you know how your career has kind of been shaped by listening and uh your success has been shaped by listening as well um and i think that's a a great lesson for all of us who are attempting to serve what you know is frankly an extremely difficult and challenging customer i always call them the toughest sell on planet earth um, our small yeah. businesses, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's really been delightful, Stephen. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, David. Enjoyed the conversation and looking forward to seeing you all. If you're coming to the conference and, uh, looking forward to staying in touch, let's go make small businesses, uh, more successful than they already are here, here. Thanks once again to Stephen Aldrich. Upcoming episodes on the Between Two Bees podcast, interviews with four more of our recent Leaders Forum keynotes. Hear from Derek Ellington, EVP of Small Business at Wells Fargo, on the state of money for SMBs. Hear from Dan Visnick, CMO of HoneyBook, on a career of building trust with small business. Mark Tina, VP of Sales Operations for Verizon Business, on breaking the seal on small business product and service adoption after the sale. And Denise Lung of Accenture, global expert on AI, talking to the impact of futures on the small business ecosystem. Listen on your podcast carrier of choice or link directly from our website, b2smbi.com. Stay in the middle of it, between two Bs.